is Jesus? And what the heck does he have to do with my life? That's the question we've been working with this Advent season. The first week we recognized through scripture that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's justice. Last week we were reminded that Jesus is the savior of the world. And this week we are told by John the Baptist that he is Lord. Now Lord is not a word that we are very familiar with in this day and age. Unless you want to count Lord Grantham. And I haven't yet heard about whether or not that series is coming on again in January, but gosh, I hope so. Oh, good. That's really about the only point of reference that we have for the use of the word Lord. I remember being in a conversation with another priest who was talking about the lack of familiarity with that term and how hierarchical it was. And maybe people had trouble with that aspect of the word Lord. And so this person suggested perhaps we should do away with that word. I said, is that possible? I mean, we're talking about God who is this big and about us who are this big. God who is bigger than the arc of my hands and us about the size of my fingers pinched together. That's the relationship that we have with God. That seems like Lord is an appropriate term. It is that big of a term. But we're not sure what that actually means in our lives. What does it mean to have a Lord? Well, in John's Gospel, which I should do a little bit of, um, I took a little sideline here to let you know, that scholars have debated ever since the beginning of John's Gospel, which came around 80 AD, who it is that actually authored the book. It's believed by scholars that it was not John the Baptist who shows up here at the very beginning. It's believed by scholars that it was not John the disciple um, and because of the time in which it was written. And it's believed that it is not John who is the one who received the revelation, which we read the revelation, the very last book of the New Testament. So scholars debate who it is that wrote John's gospel. But John's gospel is unique in that it uses metaphor a lot to talk about who Jesus is. It's in John's gospel that you hear that Jesus is the light of the world, that you hear that Jesus is the bread, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection. All of those come from John's gospel. And they in indicate for us who it is that Jesus is, in metaphorical terms, what it means to have Christ as Lord. In the stories of John's gospel, we see testimony after testimony about who Jesus is. And John the Baptist is the first to testify the first to give voice to the word. John the Baptist says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that is his testimony. Throughout John's gospel, we see testimony. In the fourth chapter of John's gospel, we see the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who returns to her village and says to people, come and meet this man who told me everything I have done. He couldn't be the Messiah, could he? And as you read toward the end of the fourth chapter, it says that the people initially believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony, but then through their interaction with Jesus, they came to believe on their own. In the ninth chapter of John, we have another story that's unique to this gospel. When the blind man is made able to see, 
In this story, a man who is born blind has been instructed by Jesus to put mud on his eyes and he is able to see. And the religious leaders want to know, how is it that now you see? The man says, this man named Jesus told me to put mud on my eyes and I did and he washed it away and now I see. And the religious leaders aren't satisfied with that answer. So they go to his parents and they say, is this your son? And they say, yes. And they say, was he born blind? And they say, yes. And they say, well, what do you say about why it is that he now sees? And they say, don't ask us, ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. He's old enough to give his own testimony. And he does at the end of that ninth chapter of John. He un does not understand how it happens, but he knows it's because of Jesus that now he sees. You get to the 11th chapter, and there's another story that's unique to John's gospel, taking up that entire chapter, and that's the raising of Lazarus. Martha meets Jesus out on the road as he's coming, knowing that Lazarus has died. And she says to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she testifies as to who Jesus is. I know that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the one coming into the world. And then Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus and prays a prayer out loud for everyone to hear, thanking God that this has happened so that people might know who God is. Even in, in Lazarus' death and resurrection, he is testifying to who Jesus is. In the 13th through the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, we get to hear an insight into Jesus' prayer for his disciples. It takes a lot of chapters to tell this. Jesus' prayer is that people might know who God is because they know who Jesus is. It is a testimony. And even at the very end of John's Gospel, which we never read in, script in church, so I'm going to read it to you now. These are the final words at the very end of John's Gospel. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. And we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things that Jesus did. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We are shown through testimony. The people in John's Gospel testify to who Jesus is because of how Jesus has been Lord in their life, has changed their life, has rearranged how their life works because of Jesus' Lordship. And through their testimony, we are invited to know these stories as our own. When I was in college at a religious college and studying religion, I was sent with another student to go out to Arizona from Southern Illinois to be a part of a women's conference, women in ministry conference. Now, I was a Methodist at the time, and the school that I pre-Methodist, which if you don't know anything about it, that makes sense because it's a tiny Protestant denomination. But it's a part of the holiness movement, which includes Pentecostals, Nazarene, Salvation Army. So this gathering of women in ministry was happening in Arizona. And most of these denominations that didn't have much of a way for women to be in ministry. And do you know what passage we used as a guiding piece for our three or four days together? The Samaritan woman who changed the world, at least her little part of the world, through her testimony of who Jesus is. That story was our story. I remember also during this time in my life when my faith 
was pulled apart and broken into a million pieces. And I couldn't quite make sense of what to do with it now. And I found the story in the Gospel of John, chapter 9 of the blind man, to be my story. Somehow Jesus had changed it all, even though I couldn't quite describe how it had happened. These stories are our stories, and they testify to who Jesus is, the Word of God made flesh. And when we see how the Word of God made flesh changed those lives, we begin to see how the Word of God made flesh changes ours. I'm sure you've done this in other parts of your life. I can't imagine I'm the only one. Even if it wasn't Bible stories, you probably look for stories in the to your own so that you can know what to look for in your own life. I remember doing that when Michael and I were first married and we moved from southern Illinois to Syracuse to go to grad school in the theater. And I thought, how is a theologian and a theater pro professional, how do they do this um, faithfully? They seem like two very different worlds. And wasn't I delighted to find that Madeline Lingle had addressed the topic in her book, Two-Part Invention, The Story of a Marriage, where she, as an Episcopal laywoman, was married to a theater actor, Hugh Franklin, who starred in one of the soap operas for pretty much his whole career, how it was that they had done their 40-year marriage. We look for these stories. How do I do this, we seem to say. I remember also when I was pregnant with Gabriel, our first child, and I was kind of uh, perplexed about this truth that I was going to have a son because I am one of only sisters, and I know how to do sugar and spice and everything nice. But I do not know what to do with snips and snails and puppy dog tails. So how glad I was to find this book that said the courage to raise good men. And I thought, well, that's the final product I'm looking for. Tell me how you did it. Testify to your story. What happened so that I know what to look for? In the Gospel of John, in John the Baptist, the first to testify. And he knows that this story is bigger than him. It is so big, and he is so small, that he is not even significant enough to untie the thong of Jesus' sandals. Yet he can give voice to the word, and in the beginning was the word. That's how John's Gospel starts, and that's what we'll read on Christmas morning. In the beginning was the word. I was speaking with our natural church development coach earlier this week, wanting to explore how it is to address what it is that we discovered in the survey that was taken by 30, 31 people of this congregation early this summer. Natural church development is a resource that in a couple of decades, and a series of questions has enabled to look at what it is that can be addressed among them that can be attended to in a way that liberates God's growth, the good news ability to grow. And the lowest factor for us, the one that could benefit from most attention, is passionate spirituality. What does it mean to take our faith ourselves and to live it out into the world? That's the area where if we put most attention, we would see the most response. So I was saying to John, how do we do that? I mean, how do you measure passionate spirituality? How do you set out a plan to address it? I mean, you don't like question people, do you, about how many times they prayed that week or something? I mean, what is it, how is it that we do this? 
And he said, Whitney, passionate spirituality is met in what it is, the obstacles that you remove so that it can grow. I said, that's what we're talking about in our gospel lesson this Sunday. John the Baptist comes into the wilderness to make straight a way for the Lord, to prepare a way for the Lord, to remove obstacles so that the Lord can come in. And that is what we're about as the body of Christ. That is what we're invited to do, to consider in these last weeks of Advent. Where are those obstacles? What is it that hinders the ability for the good news of God to grow, to thrive? What is it that impedes God's ability, our Lord, to be our Lord in our lives? We have a couple more weeks to dedicate our prayers to such a thing. The bishops of the Diocese of Connecticut ask all clergy to remember the tragedy that took place two years ago, just 20 minutes away. And I think that we could all agree that we know something needs to change in regard to the issue of gun violence. But the question is what? How do we get to that goal of gun violence being eliminated? It seems to me that perhaps that are, we're being called to think about the obstacles that hinder such a change from happening. Maybe that's where we need to think about what it is God can do to address this, this festering possibility that can, seems to hang out on the periphery of our society. We never know when it might be unleashed or let loose. There is no direction in this book about what to do about gun violence. But there is direction in this book about what to do about the things that allow gun violence to be a possibility. Perhaps it is our fear. Maybe it's our fear that allows that possibility to always be over there lurking on the edge. Well, this book knows how to address fear. Maybe it's our determined individualism that allows gun violence to be a possibility always hanging around here on the edge. Well, this book addresses determined individualism. Maybe it's that we don't know how to work through conflict. And so it always seems like a possibility that gun violence could be a tool for addressing conflict. This book deals with how to deal with conflict. The gospel stories are our stories. And as we know them, we begin to look for how it is that God comes into our lives. Because in this time, in this season, when we anticipate the Incarnation, when we read together on Christmas morning that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and there was nothing when the Word, when the word was not there. The Word has always been there. And it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This big God becomes flesh and dwells. The Word is like that of a tent. It takes a very transient outer shell to be in our midst, something that can be moved, something that's not permanent. For 33 years, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and lives were changed, and our lives can be changed. When the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, our lives are changed. We have testimonies to it. You probably know people, if not yourself. Someone came to me a few months ago and said to me, Whitney, I guess I now know what born again means because I didn't know it before and something happened to me. 
And the best words I can think of are born again. I never thought I'd say those words. We have the testimony. The testimony of God in Christ. God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The Word, something that is stagnant perhaps and flat, becomes incarnate and can live and move freely. It's through knowing these stories, through these testimonies, that we begin to know ourselves. And we can begin to say what all people have said in Scripture. O Maranatha, which means come. Maranatha means come, Lord Jesus. Amen.